0: Uh, good, we've got a... doesn't it sound like we're on. Are we on? Is this coming through? Yeah, I've got it on, guys. Is it on now? No? Let's see. Oh, yeah. Now there's power. Uh, this is this is the earliest I've ever gotten up to speak. So I, I have an... In- I have an entire hour with you guys. Could you all lock the doors? Ushers, please lock the door. Well, I want to talk about my life. I was born at a very early age. And my parents moved around a lot when I was young, but I always found them. I'm just drawing this out as long as I... Does anyone have a story you'd like to tell? (laughs) Put your hand down, Chris. You know how we've been focusing on, uh, in the last couple of months, we've been focusing on the supernatural interaction uh, with God in in giving us His thoughts throughout the day and leading us very specifically to do very specific things. We've seen... People who've uh, come to the Lord, become Christians through this, and people's workplace, and that great story last week uh, from Peter about uh, God putting on his heart his uh, professor from uh, Coast Guard School. What do you call that, Peter? Uh, Naval Postgraduate Postgraduate School. And uh, they hadn't seen each other for decades, and then he gets on an airplane at an airport, And there he's sitting beside his professor and ends up having an opportunity to pray for him while he's in a time of crisis. And what we're seeing is a pattern of of this. God says something to us. He communicates to us in some way. And we aren't sure whether it's him or not. But if we'll take a risk and do the thing that he's talking about, we'll often see some very powerful results. So I've got another story for you. Uh, My friend Josh Watanabe over here, um, he works uh, at a major grocery chain in the produce department. And he went to work uh, last week, and uh, he was walking by the sale table. There's always things that are on sale. And he saw a Batman toy sitting on the table. And when he looked at it, this thought in his head said, a young boy with a Batman t-shirt is going to come into the store later in the day. I want you to buy this toy and give it to him. So he's a very practical young man and it was on the sale table. So he decided that if the price was good he would obey that thought. (laughs) Now this may sound like some sort of weakness but I take it as a great strength. He was being frugal. He was being... A good steward of his money. So he looked at the price, and it was too much. It was $15. He wouldn't spend $15 to bring joy to a little <laughs> boy. We need to pray. Let's pray for Josh. Anyway, he, he thought it's too much. You know I mean? It's too much. So, so he just forgets about it. Well, what happens later in the day? Little boy, little boy comes in with a Batman t-shirt. And Josh sees instantly the depth of his sin. (laughs) And he decides, I gotta get this toy. But the kid's like going through the store and they're on the way out. So Josh has to get, he runs to the sale table, grabs the toy, goes to another till, gets it, pays for it, turns around and runs back to where the kid's standing in line with his mother, putting their groceries through, and Josh goes up to him and says, this is for you. And the kid just freaks out. He's throwing his hand in the air. He's, he's just absolutely ecstatic about receiving this toy. And his mother couldn't believe it. Didn't you tell him God wants you to have this toy? Yeah. So it's linked, you see, with the, with the love of the Lord. It isn't just a wonderful guy willing to spend $15 to change a child's life, no. Oh, it's much more than that. <laughs> so congratulations for obedience, finally. You know. So um, we're getting these stories and they're coming in pretty regularly. And uh, if you want your relationship with God to come alive in a way that it's never come alive before, just say this to him. You drop what might be a thought from you into my mind. And if it isn't sin, I'll obey it. And I'll try it. And I'll find out if it's you. And when we do that, he takes us at our word. And he begins to communicate his thoughts to our thoughts. And we find ourselves directed by the Holy Spirit. And we will see powerful things happen. And what really is most powerful is it changes our relationship with God. Because what's theoretical turns into something that's real and what's in the book of Acts turns into something that's today and all of a sudden parts of the Bible come alive like we've just never seen them before I remember when I came into the things of the Holy Spirit and began to see people healed getting prophetic words for complete strangers (laughs) I would find myself reading the book of Acts and I'd go, I've done that I've seen that I know exactly what Paul's talking about when he talked about that right there. Like yeah, this is alive. This is real people. We got to move away from theoretical religion. We got to move to practical application of truth. And the the only way to do that is through risk. I mean, I, I just hammer this all the time, but if we're not willing to risk, we're just not going to see very much of God. God rewards risk because risk is another way to spell faith. All right? My my mentor used to say we spell faith r i s k. When in doubt, take a risk. So anyway, today's message I'm really really excited about because when I went to um, to write this message, I I thought I had been tricked. I have to close the Roman series with Romans 16. Have you guys ever read Romans 16? Boring. I mean, here's Paul saying, say hi to so-and-so. Oh, by the way, say hi to so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so says hi. It's like, it's like a th- to me, when I first looked at it, I thought, well, this is a throwaway chapter. I got to teach on the throwaway chapter what the heck is in the throwaway chapter but a bunch of hellos and goodbyes. And uh, so I thought, how are we going to do this? And I started to, 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 to look at the people that he was saying hello and goodbye to. First the goodbyes and then the hellos. And started researching some of these people and I was looking at the language that he was using as he addressed them. And the things he was saying in particular about each one of them. And all of a sudden, I remembered, probably was a prompting of the Lord, something that he had said somewhere else in his writings. And it was his definition of real, genuine Christian community. And this is what he said in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now look at what he addresses. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. What distinction is that, Jew or Gentile? It's two, by the way. What, what, what two distinguishing features about Jew or Gentile? Hmm? What? Yes, right on, Rick. Uh, race, Jew or Gentile. There's a racial issue there, by the way. And a religious issue, Jew or Gentile. So right away, in Paul's definition of, com- uh, of community, he's coming against two things. He's coming against division through race, and he's coming again against division through religion. Do we have any problems like that today in our world? Hello? Like, could this chapter be relevant to us in the world we're living in today? You see, I opened this series. It's kind of neat. I got to open the Roman series in chapter 1, and I get to close it uh, with 16. And uh, the background for the entire book of Romans is a division between the Gentile and the Jewish church in Rome. The only reason he's writing the book is because there is this division racially and religiously between these two groups of Christians. Christians. Who won't talk to each other. Who distrust each other. We are Christians as defined by grace today because he wrote this book. He wrote this book not to set out theology because he was excited about that, but to heal a division between Christians. Isn't this wonderful? The devil intended these Christians to be at each other's throats in this city for as long as possible. Paul comes in to heal it, and in the process of healing it, redefines Christianity for what it is today. And the only reason we're sitting here in this room is because of that. God takes the worst work of the devil in disunity and turns it into our justification and sanctification. Our belonging in God came out of Paul addressing a human problem of disunity. And this disunity, unity issue is so important that he defines our Community as neither Jew nor Gentile, not race, not religion, not slave or free. Now, how does that apply to us today, slave or free? Because we don't have slavery in this country anymore. Thank you, Jesus. But we do have economic disparity and we do have people controlling others through their positional authority over them and their wealth. We definitely have people divided in this country between rich or poor, right? Right? Hello? Just like we have division over race. Just like we have division over religion. We have economic division as well. Now, of course, there's no no division in our country today between male and female, is there? (laughs) That's not a hot issue, is it? Uh, Yeah. Just as angry, as painful as any of the other divisions, is a division between genders. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. He is promising us that there is an answer to the world we're living in and what's happening in our country. He's promising us there is an answer. We can come together and rise above all of these differences if we have Jesus together. If we're focused on him and we're looking on him, these other things are not going to matter because they will not divide us because we have a greater unity than the powers of division. Is this something we need today? Come on, people. You know, I I wrote this book Reluctantly supernatural in an age of reason. And you can can get a copy if you want. And it was all about the idea that truth is dead in our secular culture. We live in the postmodern age. People no longer ask the question, is your religion true? It is irrelevant to them whether it is true or not. They don't believe in truth. They believe in individual perspective. You have your truth, I have my truth. There is no the truth. So appealing to people on the basis of the truth of our faith means absolutely nothing to them. The question they're asking is, does it work? Will it heal the problems in my life? Will it get me through the night? Will it give me peace? Will it help me raise my kids? Will it help me at work? These are the questions that people ask of us. Not is it true, but does it work? So I wrote this book saying what the church needs to rediscover in the world in which we live, is the power of God to change people's situations. People don't need an explanation of the truth until they've experienced it. When they experience the love and power of God in a supernatural way, they want an explanation for what just happened. Then they're open to the truth because they've experienced God. Are you with me? So I write this book saying, we need to be that kind of people. We need to take these risks at the supermarket. We need to take these risks at the airport. We need to take these risks constantly. Because a demonstration of the power and presence of God is enough for people to open their minds to then hear the truth. And I'm passionate about that message. But listen, right now, this message is just as relevant. The reality of the world we're living in as a country is racial division, economic division, religious division, and gender division. We are quietly tearing ourselves apart. Devil wins. Disunity is what he does for a living. But we have an opportunity here to live something so precious... So rare that people will stop and say, what's going on with those people? Look at how these people are getting along. There's black people in their church. There's Hispanic people in their church. There's white people in their church. They've come from all sorts of different denominations and they're getting along. There's rich people in their church who are hanging out with poor people in their church. There doesn't seem to be a fight between men and women in their church. What the heck's going on in their church? They all seem to be happy with each other. They seem to love each other. What drug are they on? And where do I get it? I want some of that drug. No, it's not a drug, it's a he. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. He is our meaning. He is our purpose. I just love that song. You're more real than the ground I'm standing on. You're more real than the wind in my lungs. Your thoughts define Your thoughts define me, and you're inside me, and I belong to you. His thoughts define us, and his thoughts are all about unity, and they're all about love. Chapter 16, the evidence is found that this verse can be lived amongst, ch- uh, amongst Christians. Not Jew, not Gentile, not slave, not free, not male or female, you're all one in Christ. Paul in this chapter sets out the evidence existing in the Christian community of his time that this verse can be effectively lived. So let's pay attention to it and see how he does it. He begins by commending Phoebe to the churches in Rome. Phoebe, that's a girl, by the way. And he calls her, quote, a servant of the church in Sancrea. And the word servant here is the same word that's used for deacon. Hello? Phoebe's an important person in that church. Now, it may not mean that she has a recognized position or a title. But he's mentioning her. And he's calling her a servant of the church. Why is this significant? Because in her culture, in that culture, women were of little value. There was a huge inequality between men and women in their culture. And he is addressing this inequality by bringing honor and attention to her role in the church. Now that may not seem unusual to us, but we're not in that culture. We don't understand that this is a radical thing that he just did. He's making a point. There are six women who are greeted in this chapter by Paul. And in each instance, he draws attention to their hard work and servanthood. Six women mentioned, and in every single one he says their servanthood, or he says their hard work for the Lord and for their churches. In none of the greetings to men does Paul commend them for their hard work. Now, I know a lot of you women are saying, of course. (laughs) They sit on the couch all Sunday afternoon. They watch football while I feed him and burp him and put the soother in his mouth when his team loses. goes to the trouble of mentioning these women's hard work, he elevates them, and he never says anything like that for the men. Is he trying to make a point? I think so. Isn't it amazing how Paul can make his point with something as simple as a greeting? Now the next issue that Paul t- talks about and touches on through his greetings is the issue of race. And he extends his love to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, the Jews claimed Paul as their spokesman because he was Jewish and highly educated, essentially as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of them because he's Jewish. The Gentiles claim him because he's planted all their churches and he's giving them a religion that isn't just Judaism. So see, they both, they both sort of, he's our guy. No, he's our guy. No, he's our guy. He's making making himself a bridge between these racial distinctions. Hello, Chris. He's making himself a bridge for these racial distinctions because he's a voice of reconciliation. He's not an advocate for either. He's an advocate for reconciliation. Now, what we really need in our culture today on the race issue... We don't need more far left or far right or, or, or far, far white or far black or far, far, far Hispanic or far whatever. We don't need the extremes talking in this de- debate. We, this debate has been driven by the extremes for far too long. There's a whole group of people in the middle that want peace. And they're people of good hearts. But nobody speaks for them. The agenda is being driven by the radical 10 or 15%. We need to rise up, and I think the church has the opportunity to be that voice, to rise up to speak for the people of goodwill who want to see these problems solved. By creating a place of respectful, loving dialogue where people who disagree can come together and actually listen to each other and hear what each other's saying and express love simply through being civil in the discussion. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Paul extends his love to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Neither get to claim him as their mouthpiece. Neither can co-opt him to their extreme. By doing this, he's reminding all of them that he is the spiritual father of all of them. Together. Neither of them can claim him as their own exclusively. And this is another reminder to them of their unity in Jesus. Isn't that that fantastic, people? Boy, God picked the right guy for the job in Rome. In verse 16, he goes on to instruct them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, some of us are a bit awkward with that. Like, where's the fine line between a kiss and a holy kiss? The holy kiss in their culture was a token of their love to each other. When I started doing ministry, Javier, when I started doing ministry in Mexico 20-some years ago, it was awkward at first when they kissed me. But boy, did I like it. No, I mean, I just felt loved. It was... I mean, they, they just reach over and they give you a kiss in each cheek. And, and I thought, wow, they really love me. I must be special. Then I found out they do it to everybody. In the churches, man, we're all kissing each other all the time. I've just gotten so used to it, I feel left out if it doesn't happen. I don't like you people. You never kiss me. Little old men need love too, you know. Greet each other with a holy kiss. It was a regular reminder of their love. Of the love they were to have for one another. It was also a reminder of their unity. It's really hard to hate someone you just kissed. Try it. Well, you probably do it in your marriages every day. but Oh, that was, that was cheap. Man, you get up there and you're just doing a great job and then you say something like that. if you didn't hear rick said that's why we don't kiss you thanks i get it i own that and in the same verse paul tells these roman christians that all the other churches that he's planted send their greetings you see he's dealt with their issue of unity in the city in which they live but he's not content to leave it at that He's reminding them that, I, you know, I know all these other Christians all over the place and I visit all these other churches and they're sending you their greetings too and they love you and they pray for you. He can speak for all these other churches because he's the spiritual father to all of them. And by speaking for these other churches, he's reminding the Roman church of its connectedness with all the other churches. Again, he's hammering home on unity. Now he gets real specific. He goes away from just greeting, which he's done so far, and he moves into a little bit of teaching. And in verse 17 and 18, he addresses this issue of disunity directly with a very, very strong warning. And this is what he says. And this has application for us and for our country. Listen to this. This has national application, not just in our church, but all across the churches and all across the whole country. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions. It doesn't matter whether a person is speaking from your perspective and you agree with his message, or whether a person is speaking against your position and you disagree with his message. It doesn't matter. If that person is causing division, if that person is looking to divide people, if their tone is disrespectful and hateful and unkind, get away from them. Get away from them. Don't follow them. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. When we use our race or our social standing or our religious beliefs or economic superiority or our gender, and we use that as a weapon against people we disagree with, and we do it in that way, spiteful way we are not agents of God even if what we're saying is true because the truth without love is a weapon keep away from those that put obstacles in the way in your way Obstacles that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ their own appetites. It doesn't serve God when this is how you behave. Even if your position on a particular point is true. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. In your personal relationships, avoid people who are gossiping and slandering other people that you happen to know. Just avoid them. And all these issues we face, avoid the people that are trying to make it worse rather than trying to make it better. And you know who they are. You can tell. When someone's talking to you and what they're saying is inflaming your anger, step back and pause. Take your anger to the Lord and discuss it with him. Get his perspective on the issue. And his perspective, by the way, is always loving. It always begins and ends with, whatever you do and whatever you say, say it with love. And if you can't say it with love, don't say it at all. Two warnings. The first is against those who cause divisions. So we're on the lookout for those who sow disunity amongst us. These are the racists, the sexists, the Pharisees, that seek to divide us along race, gender, and minor theological issues. The second warning is interesting. Those who would put stumbling blocks in the way of the teaching that I've taught you, Paul says. Well, what's the message of the teaching that Paul has spent his life bringing to these people? What's the heart of his message? Grace. Grace. See, Paul's greatest enemies were the Judaizers, the people that were constantly trying to come in and destroy his definition of Christianity as foundational in grace. They were legalists. They saw the world world legalistically and they saw matters of faith legalistically. And Paul's coming in and saying, and you look out for these people because I've spent my life trying to teach you about grace and they're coming in to try to take it away. Don't listen to them. These are the people that would destroy your faith and turn it into a mere religion. It's probably not happened yet to these people in Rome, but Paul's been contending with the Judaizing zealots, the religious legalists. He's been contending with them for, at this point, decades. Some think that when Paul said the Lord's given me a thorn in my flesh that I've asked him to remove countless times but he hasn't done it because by coping with this I remain humble. The the standard, standard interpretation of this verse is that Paul had some physical sickness that was recurring and chronic, and so he would constantly be weak. And uh, therefore he had to, because of his physical weakness, he had to rely on, on God more, and that's Paul's thorn in the flesh. But what's interesting about that phrase is that wherever that phrase is found in the Old Testament, and it's found a number of times, thorn in the flesh, it's always someone who's persecuting you. It's not a physical disorder. It's someone who's harassing you and making your life miserable just like a thorn in the flesh, like a splinter. Well, if we define thorn in the flesh that way, which group of people in Paul's life was constantly doing that to him? It was the Judaizers, trying to undermine his theology of grace, trying to twist the Christian church back to legalistic Judaism. And he never got rid of them. This is is written near the end of his life. Not the very end, but getting close. And he's been coping with these Judaizers for a long, long time. And he's finally saying to the Roman church, don't let these guys get you too. If they come in here preaching a contrary gospel, you don't listen to them. You get rid of them. You protect yourself from that message. They're false teachers. Keep away from them. That was critical advice then. It's critical advice now. So after that warning against disunity and legalism, Paul sends personal greetings from specific people in other churches, the ones he's mentioned earlier, that he's recently visited. Now there's one greeting that's really, really noteworthy. And uh, this is the one that got me excited when I did the research on this chapter. This one made it all come alive for me. He says this, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. So they're not—they're outside of Rome; they're in another city, and Paul is extending greetings from Erastus and Quartus. Well, Erastus is a very important person. He's part of the city government in Corinth. He's a very high-ranking, powerful guy. But Paul links Erastus's greeting with Quartus' greeting. And he's suggesting by doing so that they probably know each other. Well, so what? Who's Cortus anyway? Who's Cortus? Doesn't tell us. We're not sure. But here's what's interesting. Quartus is the number four. Alexander? Your new name will be Four. That's a weird name. Why would anyone name someone Four? Well, it was a practice at the time when you owned slaves. Not to name them, but to number them. How demeaning can it possibly be not to give a person a name but simply give them a number most likely Quartus was a slave he might have been Erastus's slave and Paul's associating them together and he's saying they send their greetings to you well, that's interesting Paul is putting number four on the same level with the high city official. He is linking together the most powerful with the least powerful. The wealthiest with the poorest. And by mentioning them together, he's giving them equal value in the eyes of God and in his eyes and in the eyes of the entire Christian community to which he's speaking. What a powerful statement. Isn't that cool? Isn't that just the most interesting thing? The kind of unity and connectedness that he is illustrating here is supernatural. It's a work of God in and through us. And it's an illustration of the nature of God to the world. They will know you are Christians by your love for one another. That's our calling card. That's our credibility. That's our message. Jesus said they'll know you're mine by the way you love each other. The greatest joy we have as Christians is the love we can experience through one another. It's literally heaven on earth. How do we begin to participate in this kind of unity, in this kind of love? Where does it start? Well, I think we've got a real good indication of this. It was common practice in the early church to have weekly meetings in people's homes, in small groups. And the Sunday meetings, when persecution wasn't preventing it, was for hearing the teaching and for coming together to worship. And that's what we do here. We come together to worship. We come together to listen to the teaching, to learn from it. But people, Sunday morning doesn't produce the kind of relationships that causes the world to say, wow, look how they love one another. That's supernatural. Don't get me wrong, I love seeing you guys on Sunday. I think we all love seeing each other on Sunday. But we don't have exactly deep conversations, do we? And sometimes it degenerates to fighting over over the last chocolate cake. When my dark side comes out and I just take it and run and put it in the trunk and pretend I never saw it. Sunday mornings will never produce the kind of relationships that Paul is talking about here. Now, we, 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 we've got to go a lot deeper for that. We, we've got to get into each other's lives. We've got to see each other's weaknesses. We've got to expose our own weaknesses to each other so someone else gets to love us and help us and find their significance in loving us. And same For each one of us, find our significance in loving somebody else, in really knowing one another, in being vulnerable with one another. You can sense a sales job coming here, right? Like there's an application here. We have these groups where we get together and the whole point of the group is just what I just said. Guys, there's nothing better than a really good connect group. There's nothing better than really getting real with one another and seeing the love that starts to flow when we're vulnerable and honest about our lives. It's just, man, nothing can touch that. So I'm trying to sell you on checking out a connect group. If you sense there's something missing in your walk with God, it's probably that you're not deeply connected to your brothers and sisters. So maybe it's time to check that out. Now I want you to all promise me right now you're going to do that. I'm kidding. Okay, we're done. But this is the earliest we've ever finished. We have like 15 minutes. Let's do this. We don't have to, but I mean, it'll either go or it won't go. But um, what do you think? And what are your comments? And what are your questions or that, that arise out of out of this message? Comments or questions? Yeah. Y'all hear that? Well, I'm going to paraphrase what Jerry said. Very often we individualize our faith. We focus on our vertical relationship with God. And we focus on things like the Ten Commandments and and, uh, command to worship Him and obey Him. We we make it a vertical thing. But when we do that, oftentimes it's, it's a loss to the horizontal relationships on our life. And remember, he, s- he gave them a new command. He said, it's a new command. The old commands didn't cover this enough. The new command is that we love one another. And that's the horizontal relationships. And, you know, John said, you know, if you, t- if you say you love God, but you don't love your brothers and sisters, well, then you don't really love God. He equates the love of God with the love for one another. The way we find out if our love for God is genuine and real is we ask ourselves, how am I treating my wife? How am I treating my, my kids? How am I treating my husband? How am I treating the people at work? How am I treating my friends? That's the actual test of whether the thing with God is real or not. Very practical. If you want to know where, you, what you, where your relationship with God is, is, is at, you just look at your relationship with the people in your life. That'll tell you the quality of your relationship with God. Super litmus test. So, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Jesus makes that really plain. Any other comments? Or, yeah. And, and that's where bravery should start. You know, if, if we make, here's the problem. When, when we hear some of the stories that Pastor John and I tell, we, we've saved our best for you guys, right? And, and they're like the spectacular things. And that's neat. And it makes everyone go, wow. But it's also intimidating. Because you think, I, I don't want to do that. That's way too risky. You'll probably fail. But Rick's saying, if we start with the, the close relationships around us, neighbors and friends, um, coworkers, whatever, and we start with acts of love for them, where we're taking a little risk, it's, I, know it gets, I know it's trite, but it's the baby step thing, right? Like if you take, if you take ten baby steps, it's, it's one leap. But it's a lot easier to take 10 baby steps than one big leap. But you're training yourself to take risks. You're training yourself to love. So start somewhere, right? There's somebody at work that needs your love. By definition, they're humans. There's someone in your office that needs your love. There's someone in the gym that needs your love. There's someone at the store that needs your love. If you <laughs> I asked my mentor when I just came into the... When I just became a Christian, I didn't know what I was made for. I didn't know what my spiritual gifts were, but I just had this desire to to serve God because God had given me a purpose for living which I hadn't had. He rescued me. I was thinking about suicide because my life had no purpose. He rescued me. And I said to my mentor, man, I don't know what I'm for. I'm, I, I was a lawyer at the time, and I said I, I should quit my job and go to seminary and discover my purpose. To get, find out what my spiritual gifts are, what I'm supposed to do. I just had this hunger to serve God. I didn't know what I was made for. And, and my mentor said, no, that's, that's stupid. He said, that's unnecessary. You don't, you don't need to do that to discover your spiritual gifts. I said, well, how do I discover my spiritual gifts? He said, find somebody to love. Find somebody to love. He said, when you do that, some of the things you do in love will work and others won't. Keep doing the things that work, ignore the ones that don't, and you'll discover your spiritual gifts. It was all true. It unfolded. And if I started going to this church and I didn't know what my spiritual gifts were, every time they asked for somebody to do something, I put up my hand. Yes, I will set up the chairs. Yes, I will work in Sunday school. Yes, I I just said yes to everything. Most of what I did was an abysmal failure. But out of the couple things I said yes to, people said, wow, that was great when you did that. That really blessed me. Cha-ching. I'm going to do more of that. It was a process of elimination. Just start loving. Random acts of idiocy. Love people. Just do it. And you will find. And you don't have to... Figure it out. They will, the people you're loving will figure it out for you. Some will say, gee, I wish you hadn't done that. And they don't really, because Christians are nice. They'll tell you you're blessing them no matter what. That's the kind of people. They'll lie to you for, to make you happy. But which stop doing that. Don't lie to people to make them happy. You're misleading them. If that's not their spiritual gift, say thank you and walk away. <laughs> Just thank you for your effort. <laughs> But if they blessed you, you say, man, that really meant a lot to me when you did that. Man, that just kind of turned things around for me. My attitude changed when you said that. Note to self, do more of those kinds of things. They are working. Isn't God practical? If it blesses people, they'll let you know, do more of that, you'll refine your gift. Any other questions or comments? I'm really enjoying this. I'm gonna string it out as long as possible. Eddie. Uh what you said about the, the prayer or if you put a thought in my mind something I would lay the Bible, so I don't know. Yeah. I have a Yeah. That's awesome. See, see, I mean, just go do it. Just go do it. Just do it. God rewards every risk even when we're wrong. Hello? God rewards every risk even when we're wrong because it was a risk. He is a risk taking God, He uses us. There's the evidence. I mean it. Guys, I'm baffled. Day after day, I say, God, I can't believe you're using me. I'm such a screw up. I have such a bad attitude about so many things in life. It's amazing to me you're still using me. And he told me one time when I said that to him, he said, well, in my world, I heal you as you go. That's what he said. In my world, I heal you as you go. Thank you, Jesus, because there's no other way for me but that. Just take the freaking risk. Just go out and do it. Eddie, go out and do it but you know you're going out and doing it with Him, right? Because He told you this Sunday to do it. Therefore, He is committed to showing up when you do it. His Spirit is already there. See, He's outside of time, Eddie. He's outside of time. That thing on the October the whatever, that's already happened in front of Him. He's waiting. His Spirit is waiting in your future. His Spirit is in that room. His Spirit is waiting for you to show up for that appointment. Therefore, you don't have to question, oh, I wonder if this is going to go okay. Oh, God, you've got to be with me. He's already with you. He's already there waiting for you to get into the room to do it. So when you go to do it, he hits. He hits, bam, like this. You can feel it, man. I mean, sometimes I I just, I can feel his spirit coming on me with power. And I know the words are going to hit home. And this confidence rises up. It's confidence in him. Because you know you're in cahoots with God right now. He's waiting for you in that room already. He's already there. He's got things in mind he wants to do. And you're not sure what you're going to say. And you're going to get halfway through your message. And all of a sudden thoughts are going to pop in your head. And you're going to fire him out, And he's going to hit somebody. And they're going to say, wow. And you're going to say, where did that come from? That was amazing. I need to remember that for later. I've, all, I've gone home from some of these messages... So excited about what I said that I didn't have any clue of, that I've listened to it online and written it all out because it was so good I couldn't stand it. Where you're more shocked at how what came out of your mouth than the people because it was that good, and you know it wasn't you. You had nothing to do with it. You just showed up and took it, took the shot. Right, man, got to take risks, people. What else? Any other comments? Do you guys hear what he said? The the key is listening. I'm doing a, I'm working on a book right now about influential leadership versus positional authority, leading through influence. The number one thing I think is listening. See, one psychologist said, the experience of being loved and the experience of being listened to are the same thing for most people. For most people, if you're listening to them really attentively, they will, ex- they will feel it as love. They will experience, this person loves me, He's, he or she is really listening to me. And here's the cool thing we do when we apply ourselves to what they call active listening. Where we're, you know, most listening is waiting for an opportunity to speak. Done yet? Now, let me tell you what I think. That, we call that listening. There's no listening there. You're waiting for an opening. No, listening is where you're asking yourself, who is this person really? What's going on in their life right now? What's motivating their emotions? Why are they feeling what they're feeling? What's wrong? What does God need to do to help them? What do they need from me right now? And you're like a detective and you're just sitting there looking for clues, waiting. And when you have that attitude of being a detective, waiting to understand, you want to understand this person. Your whole goal is to understand this person in this moment right now. And you're focused on that. Let me tell you what, the Holy Spirit has an absolute vested interest in answering that. Absolutely vested interest. He He will tell you what's going on. And then, Bob, the beautiful thing that you said, it really rocks my world, is then you ask them a few questions. See, the temptation when we get revelation about someone's life is to say, I know, I know what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on. Here's the answer. This is what you should do. Most people don't learn well with that at all. But when you can can get a sense of what God's doing in their life and what the problem really is and what's really motivating them, and then you start asking them questions about that, and they discover for themselves the answer that God's trying to bring to them, they own that answer. They're vested in it. Asking questions is one of the best ways to lead people because they become invested in the answer. Right on. Right on. It, you know, one of the problems we have, every tradition carries with it its prejudices, and our tradition is as a spirit filled people is that it has to be spiritual to have value. You know, I have to have an amazing prophetic word that changes their life or a dream that changes their life or something. And we, we devalue the practical acts of service. But to someone who's in trouble, like you're describing, swamped and everything, that's the most powerful thing we could possibly do. So uh, if you want to help, uh, Shelley keeps track of, of a whole lot of um, the needs, especially with the women. In the church, she's really in tune with a whole lot of what's going on in people's lives. And if if you've got some spare time and you want to help somebody, you call her and say, who could use some help? And she'll tell you. Man, look, angels do more than just speak peace on earth. They go and do stuff. (laughs) We can be angels by delivering a casserole, right? It doesn't have to be spiritual. Spiritual. Okay, guys, it's, we did it. It was really fun. And it's 1130. Now you get to go and watch football. But how about this? Before you just go and watch football, why don't you ask the Lord who needs love and who needs to be listened to and how can you really help somebody tomorrow who God wants you to love and be open to those thoughts that just pop into your head and then go and do them. It's an adventure when you do that. It's an adventure because you're doing it with him. Okay? Now get out of my house. Get out of God's house. And go hug somebody. Give a holy kiss on the way out.